Welcome to the 68th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg of Blue Frontier, and from the road, the ever-migratory Vicki Nichols-Goldstein of the Inland Ocean Coalition. And hello, everyone, and welcome. And today, we're pleased to speak with one of our Blue Planet's leading ocean warriors, Captain Paul Watson, founder of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, widely known for news coverage, the Whale Wars TV series, and documentaries like Chasing Thunder and Watson. With his propensity to confront and occasionally sink, disable, or arrest illegal whalers, outlaw fishing vessels, and others who threaten marine life, Paul's become both the figure of controversy and uncompromising environmental direct action to enforce the law. His most recent controversy involved his decision to leave the Sea Shepherd Society he founded and establish both a new foundation and also a new religion. We'll get into all that, but Paul, first let's start with your ocean origin story. When in your youth did you first feel a bond to the ocean and all its finned and flippered citizens? I was uh, raised in an Eastern Canadian uh, fishing village. And uh, when I was 10 years old, I actually spent the entire summer swimming with a family of beavers. And uh, that was great fun. And uh, the next summer when I went back, they were gone. And that made me quite angry. And so that winter, when I was 11, I began to walk the trap lines and free the animals and destroy the traps. So I've been pretty much doing the same thing for the last 60 years. You've definitely been busy as a beaver. You went out to Vancouver and uh, fast forward to 1969, you joined a uh, protest against one of our country's dumber ideas, which was to set off an atomic uh, weapon blast in the Aleutian Islands. I went to a demonstration at the Canadian-U.S. border, and uh, it was organized by the Sierra Club and by the Quakers, and it was to oppose nuclear testing at Amchicka Island. I went there for a completely different reason, though, because Amchicka was a wildlife reserve, and you couldn't take a rifle onto the island, but here we are blowing a five-megaton bomb up underneath of it, and that had killed a number of sea otters and sea lions. And uh, at that uh, demonstration led to getting together and forming a group called the Don't Make a Wave Committee because the uh, tsunami from 64 earthquake in uh, Alaska was still fresh in people's minds. And uh, so we set this group up called the Don't Make a Wave Committee. And um, at one of the early meetings, somebody left a meeting meeting flashed a peace sign and, and Bill Darnell said, hey, make it a green piece. And Bob Hunter said, great name for the boat. So we named the boat the um, that we took up to Anchica Island to protest the bomb. We named it the Greenpeace and then in 72 changed the name to the Greenpeace Foundation. Okay. And and then later in the 70s, you left or actually you were expelled from Greenpeace over what constituted nonviolent direct action. And quickly, well, go ahead. You wanted to say? Well, I was uh, the campaign leader for the campaign to protect seals off the east coast of, uh, of Newfoundland. And uh, as I was approaching a sealer, he was about to strike a seal, a baby seal with a club. And I, I reached up, I grabbed the club, pulled it out of his hand, threw it in the water. And uh, Greenpeace said that I had stolen the man's property and destroyed his property. And that was an act of violence. And I said to them, well, if I had to do the same thing over again, I would do the same thing over again. I think to me, nonviolence is saving lives, not uh, protecting property. Yeah, and that's, that's a very disarming form of action. So you left Greenpeace and very quickly formed Sea Shepherd. You started with one boat, and I'd like to hear about that, but really about how it grew into a essentially large maritime fleet that has operated on all the world's oceans. I set up Sea Shepherd with a specific strategy, and that what I called aggressive nonviolence. We're not going to injure anybody, we're not going to hurt anybody, but we're going to be aggressively intervene, and we have no problems with destroying property, which is being used to take life. And uh, I 
didn't have any money. I didn't have a vote, but uh, I actually got supported by two very conservative organizations, Cleveland Amory's Fund for Animals and uh, the Royal SPCA in Britain. So they were the, they funded the first vessel for me. We went against the seal hunt in Canada. And then later I took that vessel and hunted down the pirate whaler Sierra, rammed it and put it out, of, ended its career actually in Portugal. And that was your first vessel, which survived your first ramming. Just tell me a little how it grew in terms of becoming a at-sea operational fleet more than just an organization on paper. Well, I lost that ship during that confrontation with the Sierra, but we ended up by shutting down all the pirate whaling operations in the Atlantic. But I sold the movie rights to Warner Brothers, and that enabled me to buy the second ship. And uh, from there, it just grew. And uh, it was actually only around 2006 that it really grew because I had approached all these uh, TV networks and said, look, the biggest uh, show on Discovery right now is about a bunch of men going to a cold, remote area of the planet to catch crabs. And uh, I can give you men and women going to a colder, more remote, more hostile environment to save whales. It, it has to be more compelling than catching crabs every week. And Animal Planet went for it. And we did uh, seven seasons, which is a, it was their top show. And that that brought a, a terrific amount of support to, to us because of that. And so you had seven seasons with Whale Wars. Um, why was there not an eighth? Well, very simple reason for that. Uh, we won. The Japanese whaling fleet is no longer in the Southern Ocean Whale uh, Sanctuary. And uh, so it's fully protected now. It, we have to keep in mind that was called the Southern Ocean Whale Sanctuary. So what are you killing whales for in a sanctuary? And uh, finally, the International Court of Justice ruled that it was illegal and they stopped for one year. They started again, but we kept the pressure on. And finally, they left for good. And as of 2019, there's no whaling in international waters anywhere on the planet. That's a beautiful development. No pelagic whaling. All whaling today is restricted to the territorial waters of Norway 1, Japan 2, uh, Iceland 3, and uh, Denmark 4. Those are the only real whaling nations. And uh, so since I started in, say, 1974 to protect whales, I would say that 95% of the world's whaling operations have been shut down. So it's been a it's been a very successful movement, not just for Sea Shepherd, but all of the groups that were that were opposing whaling worldwide, putting pressure on the International Whaling Commission or directly confronting them or boycotts, all those sorts, all working together. I've always said that the strength of an ecosystem is in diversity, therefore the strength of a movement is in diversity. So all of those approaches contributed to that wonderful success story. And taking on a lot of corporate fishing interests and whalers, you've been indicted in five nations. You've kind of confronted the legal systems of various nation states. You uh, you managed to avoid ever being convicted, but it certainly put you in a tough position. Did, did you expect in taking on whalers and other people breaking the law that you'd end up an international uh, fugitive? Governments tend to support those uh, companies within their jurisdiction, uh, even if they're breaking the law. For example, Spain has a, a grossly illegal fishing fleet, but the uh, judges in Spain do nothing because they say it's outside of our jurisdiction. We've always expected that anything we do in the field may end up in court. And we fight them in court, and we've won on every on every occasion. We've won in the courts. I mean, Canada spent three million dollars uh, arresting me for chasing the Spanish uh, trawling fleets off of the Grand Banks of Newfoundland. Took me into court, charged me with three counts of mischief. I was facing two times life plus ten, and uh, they lost. And the reason they lost was my defense was the United Nations World Charter for Nature, which allows for individuals to intervene against illegal activities and uphold uh, international conservation law. The funny thing at the trial though, is they brought in a law professor from the University of Toronto to argue that the UN Charter for Nature didn't apply to Canada. 
And she and uh, the judge says, well, did Canada sign this? And she said, yeah, but Canada signs a lot of things. So the, ju the judge said to the jury, you have to take into account. And in fact, uh, it was rather hilarious uh, on, on the trial. My lawyer opened up the uh, trial by saying, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, we're not going to deny that we did what we're charged with. We're going to admit that we did what we're charged with. We're proud to have done it, and we intend to do it again, and we won. I wrote a book on the Coast Guard Rescue Warriors. I was surprised watching one of your films. There's a 110-foot uh, Coast Guard cutter, retired and now part of the Sea Shepherd fleet. It seems over time that I know legitimacy was not what you were seeking. You were seeking to save the world's marine wildlife. But it seems that over time, Sea Shepherd did become more of an enforcement agency that working with other Coast Guards and, and national law enforcement in various parts of the world uh, Want to talk about how that evolution took place? That first began in 1999 when I approached the Galapagos uh, National Park and we offered to help protect the marine reserve there. So I brought a 95-foot former U.S. Coast Guard vessel uh, there to as a full-time patrol vessel. And the Ecuadorian government was very supportive. I, I even got the Amazon Peace Prize for that, uh, that campaign. And it was a good campaign and that sort of evolved into working with other governments. But I'm not sure that's always a good thing because right now we're working with uh, numerous uh, governments in Africa and we have worked worked with them in Mexico and also in Latin America. The problem is, and this is what we're experiencing now, is that now those governments get to call the shots. And they they get they we, they have to approve our statements. They have to approve what we do. We have to approve what even the uniforms that we wear, the flag that we and and so that really bothers me. That's one of the reasons that I've uh, had a problem recently with Sea Shepherd is that we should not allow governments or corporations to dictate who we are and what we are. Sea Shepherd's strength has always been that we're confrontational and we're controversial, and it's all about direct action. And uh, these other campaigns working with these governments is fine if they're dealt with as campaigns, but they should not be what we're all about. And Paul, you have had incredible successes with uh, Sea Shepherd Conservation Society and Global Sea Shepherd. You've been, you created the logo, you were very upfront about your goals. And you've gone through quite a different um, relationship with them. And I'd, we would both love to hear more about what happened. I mean, we've gotten your newsletters, we've gotten your emails, but walk us through to really tell us what happened and how you feel about that. Well, I was slowly marginalized, but it started in 2019 when the, they asked me to step off the board of directors because they couldn't get director's insurance, they said, because of my reputation and my past history. But I was assured that I would still be able to participate. So I agreed to that. I stepped off the board and suddenly I found very quickly that my advice wasn't going to be respected. Uh, but then again, they hired uh, Alex Cornelison and, and Peter uh, Hammerstedt to, to run as CEO and campaign director. And I felt really good with that because I've worked with them for 20 years and that. But then they resigned in April and uh, they resigned because they were being micromanaged. So I had a board meeting in June of this year and uh, this U.S. board decided, well, we're not going to be controversial. We're not going to be confrontational. We're going to work with governments. We're going to be, well, more like Oceana, really, and focus on uh, science and things. And I said quite uh, clearly, I said, I I'm sorry, but I, I can't participate. I can't, uh, I can't be part of that. And I was told, really, well, you work for Sea Shepherd. You do as you're told. 
I said, no, I don't think so. Uh, you know, you're not going to pay me a lot of money to be a, an impotent figurehead to this organization. So that's why I resigned. Now, I was still a global board member, and that was fine. But now what happened, what we didn't know is that this board in the U.S. went around the world copywriting, trademarking everything so that they controlled it. Then they go to the global board and said, well, we control you. We own you. They actually told me I can't use my own logo and I can't use the name that I created because they own it. Uh, so the global board then reacted out of fear, really. And um, I received an email saying, you're dismissed from the global board. Well, there was no vote. I'm a, I was a member uh, of the board. I didn't get the vote. And Lamia Samlami, the president of the for France, she didn't get the vote. And uh, so I'm just suddenly dismissed. And uh, so that's the situation right now. And so Global Now has made an arrangement or an agreement with the, the U.S. board basically to do what the U.S. board wants them to do. And that means that the U.S. will now take credit for everything that's being done everywhere else in the world without having to put a penny into it because they control the logo and everything. Well, we're going to fight it, but uh, it's, the logo and the name are not important. It's the uh, the passion, the imagination, the courage of the individuals, and a great many of them are, are coming with me. And uh, we're going to continue to do the work that we've been doing. I set up the Captain Paul Watson Foundation. I named it that because, you know, it's going to be hard to take over uh, a group with my name in it. Although I have to say, Dr. D David Suzuki, the, the Suzuki Foundation fired Dr. David Suzuki and actually had a disclaimer saying that the uh, the opinions of Dr. David Suzuki are not necessarily a reflection of the Suzuki Foundation. But I think he since got his organization back. But I think this does happen a lot where uh, founders, uh, you know, from David Brower to so many others, Rick O'Berry, uh, are, uh, they're taken over by the people who get in involved with the accounting and the legal side of it. And next thing you know, they're in control. I'm not really deterred. In fact, I, I feel somewhat liberated to be away from all of that and also very motivated to uh, to carry on and uh, be even more controversial if I need be. But uh, I'm certainly going to continue to do what I've done for the last 45 years. How are you going to go forward? I don't know about your funding. You know, your funding has been really tied up with the other uh, with Sea Shepherd. So what are your plans for moving forward? How are you going to garner the volunteers, the boats? What is What are your plans? I have a lot of disillusioned former crew members who are <laughs> coming to me. Uh, I have a lot of uh, supporters who are not happy with what's going on who are coming to me. Plus, I have the support of Sea Shepherd France, the United Kingdom, Brazil, New Zealand, Austria, and they're all, you know, working with me, too. So uh, I'm not starting with nothing this time. So uh, we've got a good support base to to build on. Do you have extra boats? No, no, but we'll get new boats. Okay. <laughs> sea Shepherd US was scrapping the boats. And uh, we couldn't figure out why. They sold the Bridget Bardot. They scrapped the White Holly. They scrapped the Jean-Paul de Jory. They scrapped the, the, the Sharpie. Uh, and they scrapped them at a loss. In fact, uh, Jean-Paul de Jory, who sponsored the Jean-Paul de Jory and was maintaining it, wasn't even notified of the scrapping of the vessel. And uh, the same with the uh, the Sharpie. Chris Sharp was not notified. They just went ahead and did this. Bridget Bardot's foundation actually put two brand new engines in the Bridget Bardot, and then they just sold the vessel, uh, which is very, very disrespectful to the, to our support base. And they're not very happy about that. And, and reasonably, and of course, I understand why they're not. Well, and these ships have been uh, through a lot of good action. I mean, and, and seeing the documentary Chasing Thunder, uh, you mentioned Peter. I guess he was one of the captains on one of the two ships that chased a pirate vessel 
from Antarctica 10,000 miles across the planet until the pirate captain realized at this point there was no port he could go into without being arrested. He scuttled the ship. That was a great campaign, and uh, Sea Shepherd shut down all the, you know, toothfish poaching operations in the Southern Ocean. Uh, so it was, a, you know, something that Interpol and all the in Australia, New Zealand were, weren't able to accomplish. So we were always been we were always able to do things like that because we can operate outside of the restrictions that these governments impose upon themselves. And uh, when people say, "How do you get away with that?" Well, it's the Wild West. How do they get away with it? These people out there doing illegal things, and uh, we're we're simply trying to stop them. You know, and when they do take us to court, for instance, uh, I cut open a net off of uh, the coast of Libya of a Maltese uh, tuna fishing operation, bluefin tuna operation, and we released 800 bluefin tuna. They just took out of that net like racehorses. It was incredible. And uh, a year later, I found my ship arrested in Scotland because the Maltese had brought it to the courts in Britain and accused me of destroying their property and stealing their property. And uh, so we went to court and we won. But the lawyer for the, uh, the Maltese company said, well, we'll just keep throwing money at Sea Shepherd until we destroy them. So they took it to the Court of, uh, of Appeals and they won. And then we went to the Supreme Court and we won and they had to pay us a million and a half dollars. So you have to take these fights all the way through. What are some of the, um, the first things that you want to do with your new foundation? There's a lot of things I want to concentrate on. Uh, illegal fishing, uh, transshipment at sea, which is done illegally also. There's still whaling operations in the world that we want to oppose. Uh, we're very much involved with uh, trying to stop the killing of uh, pilot whales in the Faroe Islands. I do want to get back to trying to protect dolphins in, in Japan, something that Sea Shepherd just washed their hands of against my advice. Uh, but also one of my big concerns is one that affects each and every one of us every day. And that is since, since 1950, there's been a 40% diminishment in phytoplankton populations in the sea. And phytoplankton provides 70% of the, ox the air oxygen in the air we breathe and also sequesters enormous amounts of uh, CO2. And uh, if phytoplankton disappears from the ocean, we die. We do not live on this planet without phytoplankton. And that's a message we got to get across. And why is phytoplankton being diminished? Because they're diminishing the whales and the seals and the fishes who provide the nutrient base. They're basically farming the phytoplankton. Their fecal material contains uh, nitrogen, iron, and magnesium. And, uh, you know, one blue whale every day defecates three tons on the surface, which is eaten up by all that uh, phytoplankton. And uh, so... This, I think, is probably one of the most serious uh, threats facing our survival. And trying to get people aware that it's even a problem is actually a challenge. I mean, I got a call from a, a reporter, Brett Hume from Fox News. And he said, did you say that worms, bees, and trees are more important than people? I said, yeah, I, I, I said that. How could you say something so outrageous? Well, because they're more important than we are, because they can live here without us, but we can't live here without them. And he didn't really seem to understand the point. But that's the whole reason that I set up the Church of Biocentrism, is to bring forth this idea of living in harmony with all other species. This is one of my questions, which is, I mean, even mosquitoes feed bats. I'm kind of curious, everything's part of the fabric of life, but I'm not quite clear on what, what role humans play in the ecosystem. Well, we have one very important thing that we can do, and I think we demonstrated it in the last couple of weeks. We can deflect an asteroid, and I think that would be our major contribution to this planet. <laughs> if, a, if a killer asteroid was coming towards us, we may have the technological ability to save the planet itself, but practically that's about the only thing that we can do. 
Paul, I wanted to go back to your your new foundation and also your new religion. And and tell me more kind of on an organizational framework, how the two merge and then how this will be played out um, in, in our world. What does it look like? Well, of course, they're distinct. And it's not really a religion. It's a church. And uh, by setting up a church, you actually get tax benefits that you would never get as a nonprofit. I mean, uh, so there's advantages there, but also it's an idea that people understand what a church is. And uh, it's a community uh, coming together to address a problem or to understand or or to help each other or whatever. So in that way, a legitimate church. But it's, it's independent of what I want to do with, uh, with the foundation, which is... Um, which is to carry on doing the work that I've been doing for the last uh, 45 years, which is uh, aggressive nonviolence and direct intervention against illegal activities uh, at sea. Well, you mentioned my old friend Dave Brower, and had Dave not been thrown out of uh, Sierra Club, we probably wouldn't have Friends of the Earth or the League of Conservation Voters or Earth Island Institute. So you can always go forth as sort of Johnny Kelpseed. Well, David Brower once told me, he said, you know, they kicked me out of Sierra Club and I set up Friends of the Earth and they kicked me out of Friends of the Earth and 10 years will be kicking me out of Earth Island. But he died before that happened. But, you know, we seem to uh, expect that kind of thing to happen. When I was born, there were 3 billion people on the planet. There's now close to 8 billion people. And I remember living on the shores of the Passamaquoddy Bay, part of the Atlantic. There was no plastic. Uh, There was no shortage of fish. Uh, Everything seemed to be very healthy. So what the problem is, is we have this incredible ability to adapt to diminishment. As things become diminished, we we just accept it. We don't question it. If this is 1965 and I were to say, you know, in 40 years, you're going to be buying water and plastic bottles and paying more for that water than the equivalent amount of gasoline, you would look at me like nobody's going to do that. But we just quietly adapted to that diminishment. And this this is something that served us well, you know, 20,000 years ago when we had to adapt to diminishment. But right now it's a problem because people forget what it used to be like. And, uh, you know, I remember diving at Cocos Island and people saying, oh, this is incredible. Look at the life around here. And I said, but if you're here 20 years ago, you would see just how much it's been diminished. It looks good, but it was much better. And uh, so, again, people are, are forgetting what the past was actually like. You know, when people say, well, how can we make a difference? All you need to do is find out what you're passionate about and then use your skills and abilities to uh, to move with that. And and if you if you understand that, you can change the world. Uh, you know, because of Diane Fossey, we still have mountain gorillas in Rwanda. Because of David Wingate, we still have storm petrels uh, in uh, Bermuda. And, uh, you know, one of my crew members, 18 years old, he came to me. This is 1979. He says, what are we going to do about the treatment of chimpanzees in the laboratories? And I said, nothing. This is Sea Shepherd. But what are you going to do about it? And he said, well, what can I do about it? I said, well, use your imagination. Come up with something. And and he did. He went into a lab in uh, Maryland, got a job, uh, worked there for a year, got the documentation, exposed everything in the Washington Post, local TV stations, and shut the place down. But then he founded his own organization, which is People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And that's just, this is what we try to do and have tried to do with Sea Shepherds, encourage everybody who comes on as a crew member, if you're passionate about something, go for it and don't let anybody deter. I wanted to go back to what you were saying, Paul, about follow your passion, because, you know, David and I have both been following our passion with our ocean work, whether it's, you know, Inland Ocean Coalition, Blue Frontiers, Hill Days, we've had a great time to interact with you. And I think that's really a smart thing to say because so many young people say, well, what do I do? I'm only one person. And I think you, I think we all agree. Just follow your passion, do something 
important and be an example to others. And we've talked a lot about environmental issues, about problems with whaling and dolphin decline. Give us some inspiration. We know about the problems. Just share some hopeful inspiration with us, if you could. More success stories like on whaling. Well, uh, I'd like to share one thing. One of the most valuable lessons I ever learned was way back in 1973, I volunteered to be a medic for the American Indian Movement during the occupation of Wounded Knee. And while I was there, we were surrounded by 3,000 federal agents who were shooting at us. 20,000 rounds a night were being shot at us. They killed two people. They wounded 46. And I went to uh, Russell Means and I said, "We, we can't win this. The odds against us are overwhelming. I mean, it's impossible. What are we doing here? And he told me something that stayed with me for the rest of my life. And he said, well, we're not concerned about the odds against us. We're not concerned about winning or losing. We're here because this is the right place to be, the right time to do it, and the right thing to do. Don't worry about the future. Focus on the present. You can't control the future, but you can control the present. So what you do in the present will define what that future will be. And so that stayed with me ever since. And I try to convey that to other people. Don't get depressed about the future. Don't be pessimistic about the future because your power is right here and now. And this is how you can make that change. I won't ask what's your favorite of your children, but in the fleet, did you have a favorite vessel that you've? Oh, I did. My flagship for the Steve Irwin. You know, so that was my favorite vessel. Yes. Describe the Steve Irwin. Well, it was a former uh, Scottish uh, fisheries patrol vessel. So it had speed. It had it was ice strengthened. It took us down to Antarctica, to the Southern Ocean. And I was able to uh, blockade the, uh, the the Japanese factory ship uh, with it. But it, it was a beautiful ship. And so, yeah, I regret that, um, you know, we had to retire it. But uh we named it. Uh, we named it the Steve Irwin because uh, Steve Irwin was going to join us that year, and uh, he died just before uh, mm-hmm. that happened. So I asked uh, I asked Terry Irwin if we could name it in his honor, and because we were in Australia, we thought I thought that was would get a lot of support, and it did. And uh, so that was my favorite ship. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, I hope that the next time David and I interview you, we will be on your new boat. And with your new foundation, and that we will be talking about your fantastic successes. Well, thank you, because, uh, you know, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to intend to make waves and I intend to rock the boat. And like I always say, you know, my job is really uh, to piss people off because uh, we do <laughs> things. You know? Well, you're, you're, you're very successful at your job. So uh, thank you so that. much for. Being. I used to describe ourselves as the ladies of the night of the conservation movement. Many people agree with us, but don't want to be seen with us in the daytime. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you will be successful. You are a fantastic troublemaker and all of the animals and the whales um, and people who care about the ocean. We thank you very, very much for your work and we'll continue to hear about your successes. And thank you for being part of the Rising Tide Ocean Podcast. Well, thank you. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helbart and myself, Vicki Nichols Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support is provided by Studio Cape May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbark. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast, at www.bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, tear Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.